This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. former dancer and about-to-retire choreographer is surprised to receive a letter from a foreign country. The short handwritten note rekindles memories of a love affair and a separate friendship decades before in Nicaragua. Her recollections spark insights that hadn't been apparent to her so long ago. Patty Somlo's most recent book, Hairway to Heaven Stories, was published by Cherry Castle Publishing a black-owned press committed to literary activism. This book was a finalist in the American Fiction Awards and Best Book Awards. She is also the author of The First to Disappear and Even When Trapped Behind Clouds, a memoir of quiet grace. This is a work of fiction. Dancing to Go On Written by Patty Somlo. Read by Julie Niblett. The letter arrived on a February morning that was unseasonably warm. Folded twice and sealed, the thin blue paper barely weighed more than air. I was surprised to find this wisp of correspondence in my mailbox between the utility bill and a fat piece of advertising junk. Hardly anyone wrote letters anymore and this was obviously from another country. I had traveled, some with my dance company and some on my own. There had also been a time when I lived in Nicaragua, thinking of abandoning America and staying there the rest of my life. But that was such a long time ago. Who could be writing to me from abroad now? The invitation to the conference claimed that someone had suggested I be invited. Before I finished reading, I knew. This was Elena's doing. Passionate Elena, who talked me into marching against this or donating to that. Elena, who I loved dearly, with her strident poetry and desperate need to make the world better. Elena had given them my name. Elena was older than me by ten years, though she seemed ageless. She draped herself in purples and turquoise, chartreuse and hot pinks. Like me, she was tall. If I close my eyes, I can picture her in layers. A long, flowing lavender linen shift, topped by an emerald vest, then a loose jacket over that, and scarves, beaded necklaces, and a hat or wide headband.
not to mention the gaudy gold, silver, or brass earrings brushing her neck. I had made a name for myself as a principal dancer in Edward Mark's company. When I asked Elena why she wanted me to go to a conference, she said I could influence people who didn't have an opinion on the subject. What subject is that? I asked. Elena reached over and pinched my cheek. That is exactly why I want you to come, she chirped. There was a war going on, she explained. The U.S. government was funding an army based north of Nicaragua in Honduras, attempting to overthrow the Sandinista regime. Many Sandinista leaders were creative people like us, writers and painters, dancers and musicians, and dreamers, trying to make a better life for their mostly poor countrymen. As Elena was aware, I didn't pay attention to politics or the endless wars and violence around the world. My work as a modern dancer and choreographer consumed me, along with the occasional love affair. In the end, I did go to the conference. Elena raised money for me, probably the same way she convinced people to sign petitions and donate to causes. The purpose of the conference was to bring artists and writers to Nicaragua from the United States, Canada, other parts of Latin America, and the Caribbean, who would spread the word that the war needed to be stopped. After a long, hot day touring the country and listening to speakers drone on, buses brought us back to a former military barracks, where Elena and I shared a small, windowless room. She was thrilled that we had been housed with the Cuban delegation. Though exhausted, once I heard the Afro-Cuban beats and saw the Cubans dance, I was glad we were with them, too. I quickly picked up the steps and started looking forward to hours of dancing every night. The Cuban men were handsome and endless flirts. The conference had been scheduled to coincide with the fourth anniversary of the Sandinista guerrillas' triumph over the Somoza dictatorship. Four years earlier, on July 19th, the fighters who Nicaraguans referred to as Los Muchachos, the boys, came down from the mountains and marched triumphantly into the capital, Managua. I had heard the story several times and was captivated. On the day of the anniversary, festivities began at a former private club, since taken over by the government. Tempting food was laid out on long tables surrounding the pool. The smooth aquamarine water looked inviting. I wanted to throw off my clothes and plunge in. I had just set a slice of mango on my plate when I raised my head and glanced across the patio. My eyes went straight to a man wearing one of the loose white cotton shirts many Nicaraguan men preferred. He had black hair, a matching mustache, and dark eyes that drilled right through mine. I stared back, but he didn't flinch, forcing me to break contact. That's one of the commandantes, Elena whispered. He's a government minister now. Oh, I said, and turned back, searching for the man again. As the artists at the conference began to get to know one another, they started making plans to use their talents to stop the war. 
we tossed around ideas about fundraising performances, then turned to cultural exchanges between our countries. That was how the invitation came for me to teach modern dance in Managua. Maria Carmen, director of the Managua-based Escuela de Danza, arranged for me to rent a room in a large house near the center of town. Moments after Berta, the owner, showed me my room, someone knocked on the door. I was surprised to find a pale, beefy man standing there smiling, his blonde curls running every which way, as if he'd come in from a windstorm. His hair matched the state of his rumpled linen shirt and khaki cargo pants. He was holding a tall, dark brown bottle. Hello, he said. Welcome to Nicaragua. British, I suspected from his accent. Bill Andrews, he said, reaching out his right hand, then gesturing to the left with his head. I'm next door. We share the balcony. I smiled and shook his hand. Anna De Niro. Come, have a drink. It sounded like an order. I was sure he was British now. A freelance photographer, Bill was on his third visit, covering the war. He claimed to have a love-hate relationship with the country. I adore the people, he said. Like what the Sandinistas are doing, helping the poor. Hate the awful hot as goddamn hell weather, though. Hate that nothing works. It's impossible to get anywhere because of the lack of transportation, partly because of the U.S. embargo. And the food's atrocious. But the rum, he said, holding his glass up and grinning. Flor de Caña, smoothest in Latin America. We each sat in a cane rocking chair on the balcony. Across the street, deep pink bougainvillea climbed a white stucco wall surrounding a multi-story house. Bill knew everything about Nicaragua. He pointed me to the few good restaurants and introduced me to the Alegre, where creative people gathered on weekends for music and poetry. A few weeks after meeting Bill, I found myself sitting at a long communal table in the Alegre with a newly made friend, Dina, an artist from L.A. She was painting a mural on the dance school's west wall. The musicians had played their last set and were packing up when I noticed people crowding close to the front door. As I studied the crowd, four soldiers dressed in olive green fatigues and high, shiny black boots stepped out. What do you think's going on? I asked Dina. Don't know, she said. We watched as the crowd broke up. Oh, look who it is, Dina said. I squinted, hoping to get a better look. I can't see anyone, I told her. It's Edgardo Castillo, Comandante Castillo. She enunciated each syllable, Comandante. I spotted a slightly older-looking soldier behind the others. Oh my God, is that him? That's him, Dina confirmed. In place of the loose cotton shirt he'd been wearing at the poolside reception, he now wore an army uniform. As he moved through the crowd, men and women rushed over to greet him. 
one woman reached out and gave him a hug. He continued moving forward, heading, I suddenly realized, directly toward me. My first instinct was to look away and pretend I wasn't interested in the man everyone appeared to be fawning over. But I was interested. I turned back around as he pulled out the chair across from me and sat down. Buenas noches, he said. Buenas noches. I struggled to ease my suddenly dry lips into a smile. He leaned back in his chair and stretched his legs out front. I'm so tired, he said, as if we were a long-married couple getting together at the end of a day. I nodded, desperate to say something clever, but could not get a word out. Thankfully, he kept talking, explaining that he'd been working 12 to 14-hour days. Everybody wants something from me, he complained. I sensed that he was more than exhausted. As he went on, I suspected he might be drunk. He had wavy black hair that fell in two separate curls over his forehead and dark expressive eyes. The intensity of his gaze unnerved me. When he smiled, a dimple surfaced on his right cheek, giving the impression he was harmless. He grinned as he spoke, making me think I shouldn't take anything he said seriously. I listened, keeping my gaze on him, aware of the way he was looking at me. Some time later, a young soldier brought him a beer. The commandante took a sip, used the back of his hand to wipe foam from his top lip, then leaned across the table and whispered, You have beautiful eyes. He asked my name. After I told him, he said, So what are you doing in Managua, Anna? He pronounced my name as if it were a pleasant surprise. Anna. I was teaching dance, I told him, and he asked if I was a dancer. Yes, of course, I said. Then he startled me, reaching his hand across the table and caressing mine. One of the soldiers walked over and whispered in the commandante's ear. I have to go, he said to me. When can I see you dance? Before I could reply, he asked, Can we meet for dinner this week, say on Tuesday? My mouth went dry. Was this the alcohol talking? Would he remember the invitation when the booze wore off? Three nights later, I was sitting on the patio of Antojitos, the closest Managua had to an upscale restaurant. The outdoor seating area was enchanting, bordered on two sides by tall white stucco walls covered in climbing orange, pink, and lavender bougainvillea. I'd arrived a few minutes before nine, our agreed-upon time, and ordered a bottle of Tonya, the local brew. Just before eleven, I had to admit the commandante was standing me up. Nicaraguans were frequently late. But two hours? I was disappointed, but not surprised. I paid for the beer and left a tip. Just as I put my wallet away, three soldiers stepped onto the patio. Behind them, I spotted the commandante. 
As soon as the waiter saw Castillo, he hurried over. I am sorry to be late, Edgardo said, leaning down and kissing my cheek. He dragged a chair closer, sat down and reached for my hand. How is everything? Are you enjoying your time in our country? I am, I said. Edgardo's eyes locked on my face, as if admiring sights in a foreign country he was visiting for the first time. As soon as we ordered, Edgardo asked, So where is your husband? I'm not married, I answered. Divorced? No, never married. I knew what was coming, so I announced, No children. How can that be? The Comandante wanted to know, his eyes wide. I haven't wanted to get married or have kids. I'm a dancer. That's my life. It's hard to be a dancer and raise a family. What about you? I'm divorced. I have a daughter. She lives with my ex-wife. The waiter set two large white porcelain plates down. You've written a book, I said to Edgardo, once the waiter had gone. Yes, he said, smiling. Do you want to know the truth? What's that? I didn't write it. What do you mean? Several people have told me that the book and you are famous. Are you saying someone else wrote it? No, no, no. It's all my words. But I used a tape recorder. I told the story to the machine. That's why people love it. I told it like I would tell any story to a friend, using ordinary words and lots of slang. He laughed. I don't know if I could sit down and write. Later that night, he described his life, living in the mountains as a guerrilla fighter. It was so beautiful to feel like we were winning. You cannot know how incredible it is when people work together and overthrow a powerful dictator. Even though we are now in charge, I miss that time. We talked long after the waiter had removed our plates and set the bill down next to Edgardo. I hadn't realized we'd been sitting there for hours. At one point, Edgardo turned and looked around the patio. We are the only customers here. They must want to close for the night, he said. He moved his chair closer to mine. Why don't you come home with me? I had never met a man quite like Edgardo Castillo. Yes, he was handsome, but I had been with my share of good-looking men, including dancers with their finely tuned, chiseled bodies. A former guerrilla fighter with a romantic past, he also had a strong spiritual side. He cared deeply about his country and improving the lives of the poor. I hoped being with him might make me a better person. I fell in love with the man I imagined Edgardo Castillo to be. This wasn't the first time I had fallen in love with a fantasy. And sadly, it wouldn't be the last. Several nights a week, I walked down the long flight of stairs from my room and slipped out the front door. Except for soldiers guarding the house across the street, I rarely saw anyone outside. 
I hurried down the unlit street toward the Intercontinental Hotel, lit up in the dark. Whenever a car passed, the headlights momentarily blinded me. The best place to catch a taxi was in front of the hotel. I often had to wait an hour as cabs pulled up too full to squeeze in one more. The roads were pitch black as the capital lacked streetlights. I feared a driver might take me out of the way in order to charge more. No matter what, the drive was long, since Edgardo lived at the edge of town. The house was perched atop a hill, with a balcony overlooking a pretty small lake. I often fantasized about living with Edgardo there. Standing on the balcony, I imagined dancing across the nearly empty dining room whenever he was away. On nights I didn't go to Edgardo's, I often shared a glass of Florida Cana with Bill. We sipped the strong, smooth rum and watched soldiers march back and forth in front of the large house across the street, where we'd heard a high-up government official lived. I loved chatting with Bill. I felt an ease with him that I didn't realize might mean an attraction to someone who wasn't my type dark-haired, dark-eyed, and passionate. Even so, I made sure not to breathe a word about Edgardo. I had promised him that I wouldn't tell anyone about the affair. Since my lover was a high-level official in the government and army, keeping our relationship a secret made sense. When Bill asked where I'd been on the nights I stayed with Edgardo, I claimed to be at Dina's unable to get a taxi. Bill disappeared himself, traveling north to photograph the war zone. He also hung out with the journalists, hoping to be hired as their photographer. The night was humid and warm, while I waited for Bill on the balcony, a pesky mosquito buzzed around my ear. Buenas, Bill said as he stepped through the French doors. Buenas, como estas? How are you? I'm beat. Just got back from the border. He sat down, poured us each a glass of rum and handed me mine. We clicked glasses and Bill said, Salud. Salud, I echoed. So, what's up? Bill asked. I took a quick sip. I'm thinking about staying longer. That is, if the dance school will extend my contract. My six-month contract with the school was nearing an end. Place grows on you, doesn't it? It does. I know how you feel, he said. Life seems so immediate here. There isn't that distance between people I find back home. When I'm out on the street, everyone comes up and talks to me. I know, I know, I'm this big blonde gringo. But there's just so much life here. The women with their fresh-squeezed juice stands and the ones charring corn cobs on those small, low grills. Even in this neighborhood, the people who walk by the house early in the morning selling milk and shouting, Leche, leche! or the boys hawking the Sandinista newspaper, singing, Barricada, Barricada. 
I like being here, but I do miss the comforts of home. That's why I fly back to London every so often. But then I always return. He laughed. If for nothing else, I'd come back for the rum. I felt alive in Nicaragua, too. Yes, I was in love, and love affairs made me happy. But it was also the country, its sultry weather, friendly people, and the hope they had of creating a better life. I agreed with Bill that there seemed to be a veil over my life back home in San Francisco. Walking city streets, I stayed alert, in case someone might run up behind me and snatch my purse. In Managua, I had the same experience as Bill, of people coming up to talk, asking where I was from and if I liked their country. It made me realize how invisible I felt at home, as if I could die and no one would care. Bill poured me a second glass of rum. I silently warned myself to refuse a third. The rum had already done its job, making the worries I'd been chewing over disappear. And I had been worrying. After months of wanting to see me all the time, Edgardo had started making excuses for why he couldn't. I chalked it up to the war, but he also seemed distant. Sometimes when I asked him a question, he would respond, What? And I knew he hadn't been listening. Instead of lingering late on the balcony, he retreated to bed early, falling asleep moments after his head hit the pillow. He got out of bed just after the sky grew light. Before we even had coffee, he would come into the bedroom and kiss me goodbye. Heard a bit of gossip today, Bill said, breaking into my thoughts. Bill loved passing on news he'd picked up from journalists at the Intercontinental's breakfast buffet. What did you hear? It's about one of the commandantes. He paused to take a sip. The Minister of the Interior. I felt as if he'd suddenly slapped me. Commandante Edgardo Castillo's got a love nest at the edge of town. Some bungalow by a lake that used to belong to one of Somoza's former generals. Castillo sleeps with the women he sees there. The commandante's wife supposedly knows and is threatening to go public if he doesn't give it up. I wanted a hole to open under my chair and let me fall in and die. long ago was I sitting there, listening to those words, knowing the life I had fantasized about was gone. I ran the numbers through my mind. Three decades. Such a long time. And I still felt hurt and shame flooding my body. Yet, as I relived those days in my mind, I also realized what I hadn't understood at the time. Edgardo and I were having an affair, nothing more than that. After that first dinner at Antojitos, Edgardo never took me anywhere. I loved being with him and adored the lakeside house, so I didn't find it strange to not be going out. It never occurred to me that Edgardo and I were hiding in a love nest. 
Bill gave me more than enough time to respond, but I stayed quiet. I'd been keeping another secret from Bill, one I'd also been hiding from Edgardo. They say Castillo's been meeting an American woman at the love nest, Bill said. I swallowed hard, my throat aching and dry. Of course I wanted to ask the woman's name, but I couldn't. When I finally spoke, my voice was weak and harsh. Who did you hear this from? Bill cleared his throat. One of the reporters got it from a source. Who was the source? A soldier in Castillo's security detachment. Which of those sweet, handsome men had it been? During the long ride the following night, I argued with myself. One minute I'd decide to end the affair. The next I would change my mind. Are you sure someone is expecting you? The driver asked as he pulled in front. Looking out the window, everything appeared dark. Why don't I wait for you? He suggested. Go check, then come tell me if everything is all right. I crept up the dirt path, unable to see in the dark. Bird calls and strange animal sounds filled the air. Small rocks crunched under my sandals. Clinging to the thin metal railing, I climbed the steps to the porch. He's fallen asleep and forgotten to turn on a light, probably exhausted from working so hard. No soldiers were stationed outside. At least one should be here, I thought. I walked to the door and reached for the knob, turning it gently. The knob wouldn't budge, so I tried again. The house was locked tight. The next night, as the taxi pulled into the open area in front of the unlit house, I looked out through the window. Is this where you wanted to go? The driver asked. Fighting back tears, I choked out. No, I made a mistake. I looked at the dark house for the last time. What do you want me to do? Take me back to the hotel, I answered, pulling a tissue from my pocket. After I opened the door to my room, I noticed a folded piece of white paper on the floor. I smiled, thinking a note had been delivered from Edgardo. I bent over and picked it up, unfolding it as I walked to the chair and sat down. Dear Anna, I was hoping to get a chance to say goodbye, but alas, I had to leave before that could happen. My mom had a stroke, and I'm headed back to London to see her. I don't know yet when I'll return. Help yourself to what's left of the rum. The bottle is on my nightstand. I've scribbled my address on the back. Write and tell me what and how you're doing. Best, Bill. I lay in bed, wishing for sleep that wouldn't come. Finally, around two in the morning, I got out of bed picked up the bottle of Florida Cana and carried it to the porch. The air was warm, something I would miss back home, where nights were usually foggy and cold. I gulped straight from the bottle, then turned to my left, taking in the other rocking chair. Empty now. 
It was bad enough that I'd been dumped by my lover, but I'd also been abandoned by the intelligent, funny man whose company I had enjoyed more than I realized until now. Just after dawn, I slipped out of the house. I stood on the sidewalk across the street, struck by the light caressing the orange and purple petals of the bougainvillea, making them shimmer. A soldier walked toward me. I looked at him and smiled. I handed him a small amount of money and asked if he could deliver a letter to Comandante Edgardo Castillo. He smiled and said he would once his shift was over. That night, I poured myself the last few inches of rum, then wrote a confession of sorts to Bill. I suspect you know the name of the American woman Edgardo Castillo was meeting at his love nest. Anyway, it's over. I've decided to head home. I hope your mother recovers quickly. I loved our nightly rum chats and already missed them. And you. Let's keep in touch. I hope we'll meet again. My stomach was grumbling, reminding me that I hadn't eaten for hours. I checked my watch, surprised so much time had gone by as I relived the days when I was young and much more foolish. I knew I should eat, but it felt dreary to eat alone. Instead, I picked up the letter and read it for what seemed like the hundredth time. After I'd returned to San Francisco, I waited to hear from Edgardo. Every day I anxiously sifted through the bills in my mailbox. After a few weeks had passed, I started to give up hope. And yes, I gave up Edgardo's child, terminating the pregnancy. The woman I imagined myself to be in Managua, a place of families with lots of adorable children, vanished once I had returned to my city of mostly single, childless adults. I stepped right back into my old life, rejoining the company, practicing for long hours, my body remembering how much it loved to dance. In the evenings, I got together with friends I'd forgotten to miss while I was gone. I unfolded the letter and thought about the way things had turned out. Instead of me making a life in Nicaragua, Bill was the one who had settled there, marrying a Nicaraguan woman and having children with her. Things have gotten worse since my last letter to you a few years back, Bill wrote. Protesters have been shot. People have disappeared. Some have been arrested and probably killed. Thousands fled the country, heading across the southern border to Costa Rica. I am fine, at least for now, since I'm still working for a British news service. But the reason I'm writing. Your old friend, Edgardo Castillo, has been arrested. After the president turned into the sort of dictator he and the Sandinistas fought to overthrow, Castillo joined the opposition. I don't know if anything can be done by the American government to save his life, or if you even care but I wanted to pass on the news. I'd read the letter so many times, 
I could almost recite Bill's words by heart. Yes, I'd heard things had changed for the worse in Nicaragua. I felt sad for the people, after so much struggle and promise of a better life. But when I searched inside, I felt nothing for Edgardo. I got up from the rocking chair and walked down the hall. Instead of looking for something to eat in the refrigerator, I grabbed a bottle of wine. After wrestling the cork out of the bottle, I debated how far to fill the glass. What the hell, I said, pouring wine to the top of the glass. I wish you were here, Bill, I said, raising my glass. I wish we were sitting out on the balcony, sweating in that hot, damp air. I wish I had picked you instead of Edgardo. Of course, I don't miss those damned mosquitoes or that awful-tasting rum, I laughed. I carried my glass back down the hall to the living room. After several sips, the wine had started to take the edge off. As I drained the glass, the silence in the apartment became unbearable. I walked a bit unsteadily across the room, where I picked up a disc and slid it into the CD player. Long before Bill's letter arrived, I had started reminiscing about my time in Nicaragua. What got me remembering was hearing some old Cuban music for the first time in many years. This music that I'd once adored inspired me to choreograph the final piece the dance company had been rehearsing. I set the work to music that Elena and I had danced to each night with the handsome Cuban men. The dance piece told a story of a young man and woman through their dancing together. The couple falls in love without speaking a word as their bodies move as one, joining with the music. One after another, I dragged the three chairs across the floor and pushed them against the wall. Then I rolled up the rug and pulled it into the hall. Coming back into the cleared-out space, I let the rhythm of the drums in the song Quintada move through my feet, then up to my hips and arms. Celia Cruz and the Fania All-Stars belted out the words in Spanish, singing that the rumba was calling them. As I went through the steps, I recalled how, for so many years, dancing had healed me. Dance was the place I returned to when one after another lover left me. Now that I'd grown old, dance was the one lover I had left. I danced, floating away on the music, until my bare feet ached. I danced, throwing off the years and long hours of sorrow and solitude. I danced until the sadness that swallowed me, recalling Edgardo's betrayal, faded. I danced, knowing this was how I would go on. This story is copyright 2022 by Patty Somlo. This recording is copyright 2022 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.
The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.